0: Church, if you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn in them to the book of Revelation, chapter 5. Before we leave chapter 4 that we looked at last week, I want to spend a few moments seeing Jesus in that throne room scene. We didn't talk a whole lot about Jesus last week, but he is essential To that throne room scene. Chapter 4 was all about the throne of God. God, We saw God the Father on the throne. But remember that our God is three in one. He is monotheistic. We are monotheistic. but, But he is three in one. And we saw the Trinity all throughout that scene. God the Father was on the throne. God the Spirit was in front of the throne. In the form of the seven torches. And God the Son was there with John showing him this throne room scene. He, he is the one whom John said spoke with a voice like that of a trumpet who invited John up into the throne room scene in heaven and said, come up here, come up here where I am in, in essence so that I may show you what must take place after this. So Jesus is not absent from that picture. He's essential to it. And remember that God is spirit, so who can see God? But as we read from the book of Hebrews, if we want to see God, we just look at Jesus. Because Jesus is the exact representation of his nature. He is the radiance of God's glory. So we want to to see what God looks like. We need only look at Jesus. And so John was describing for us in that throne room scene, not so much what God the Father looks like, but what he is like, his nature and his character. So we didn't talk a whole lot about Jesus in the sermon last week. I wish I'd had more time to flesh out how Jesus was integrated into that scene. But this morning, chapter 5, is all about him. Chapter 5 is all about the Son. It's all about Jesus, the Lamb of God. There are two sections in chapter 5. And when I was originally uh, reading through this and kind of planning out my sermons, I thought I would split chapter 5 into two weeks, two sermons. But they really are, these two sections are really dependent on one another. You can't cover one without covering the other, really. And so we're going to cover them both this morning. The first section is the first seven verses, which introduces to us this scroll and the Lamb, who's the only one who's worthy to open the scroll. And then the second seven verses, verses 8 through 14, is all about the worship of the Lamb because He is the only one who is worthy to open that scroll. Now, normally what I like to do is read through the entire text Pray over it, and then launch into the sermon covering all of it. So, this but this morning I want us to do something a little bit different, um, if you don't mind. Um, what I'd like to do is cover the first seven verses, just read through them verse by verse, explaining them as we go, and then when we get to the second seven verses, the worship of the Lamb, just read through that in its entirety, uninterrupted. You okay with that? All right. Any objections? Good, we will proceed. <laughs> let's, let's pray and ask God to bless the reading of His Word as we study it together. Our God, as we uh, consider this scene where there is a scroll, a book that contains within it your plans to answer all of the evil and all of the injustice And all of the rebellion in the world. From the beginning of time until the end. A book that contains within it. Your plans for our ultimate salvation. And the restoration of making all things new. We are so thankful that there is such a book. And as we consider that book father. We are thankful for this book that we hold in our hands. That reveals that to us that shows us who you are. We're thankful that we don't have to guess at what our God is like, what the creator and what his nature is like. You are a revealing God who has revealed himself to us in the revelation of this book. We're thankful, Father, that your spirit saw to it that this is your breath and in it we find life. We're thankful for the good news of the gospel that we find here. And the gospel that we see plainly laid out in this passage. Father, I pray for every single person within the sound of my voice this morning. Whether they're in this room or downstairs or at home. Whether they know you by faith in your son or whether they are just checking you out. Father, I pray that that gospel truth would ring clear in their hearts and lives. To those who do not know you, Father, we ask and pray and plead with you that you would grant to them faith to trust in Jesus. And Father, those of us who do know you by grace through faith, oh God, would you you enlarge our perspective of your majesty and glory And the worthiness of your Son. We ask this in faith in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation chapter 5, verse 1 says this Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. So he begins with the word then. It's a timing word. It locates this in time. And and it tells us that this continues right after the throne room scene of chapter 4 that we saw last week. There's no interruption here. He sees the throne of God. He sees him who sits on the throne. And then he sees this in chapter 5. There's no interruption here. So, So again... Jesus was there in this scene all the time. He was not absent. He says, I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. We know from chapter 4, him who was seated on the throne was God himself, God the Father. And so there was something in his right hand that John saw. What did he see? He sees a scroll written within and on the back. The word scroll... In the Greek, is the word biblion, where we get our Bible, word Bible, but it literally just means book, something that is a form of communication that is written on. For them, the scroll would have literally been a parchment that is rolled up. And he says here that it's sealed with seven seals. Now, this scroll is going to be a focal point of this chapter. And these seals, these seven seals, will be the focal point of the next several chapters in the book of Revelation. So we don't know much about the seals at this point. We'll get to that in the coming weeks. For now, all we know is that the one who sits on the throne is holding a scroll. And it's sealed with seven seals. You can't see what's inside it. He can can see that there's writing inside and on the back, but he can't read it. It can't be opened. It's sealed. Then he says in verse 2, And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. So he sees this mighty or a strong angel we were introduced to a couple of different angelic beings last week in chapter 4. The four living creatures and the 24 elders who were unceasingly worshiping God on his throne in heaven. And now we're introduced to another angelic beings, a, a mighty angel, a strong angel who is proclaiming with a loud voice, shouting out loud this question. Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. And in response to this angel's question, John concludes for us in verse 3. No one. He says, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. Nobody. He says, on earth, in heaven or on earth or under the earth. That, that pretty much includes all of creation, right? It includes everything. There's nothing created that's not either on earth or, or in heaven or under the earth. And, and, and in all of that, no one who's, was found who is able to open the scroll or even to look into it. And so there is both a worthiness and an ability that is required to open the scroll. The angel asked, who is worthy? Is anyone worthy? Just as we just sang. And John's conclusion is, no one is able. And it's the worthiness that is the key that unlocks this, literally. Because if one is worthy, that would make him able to open the scroll, to break the seals and open the scroll. But none was found worthy. Now, I want us to consider that word worthy for just a moment. So that we can get a grander picture of what's being said in this chapter. The word worthy is the Greek word axios, and it literally means the weight that balances the scale. If you, in that time, wanted to find out how much a bushel of grain weighed, you would take that bushel of grain and you would put it on a scale in order to find out how much that weight of that bushel of grain was, you would put a weight on the other side of the scale. And if that, if that weight did not balance the scales, then it wasn't axios. And so you would add more weight and more weight until it balanced the scales. And, and the weight that balanced the scale was considered axios. It was worthy of that which was on the other side of the scale. So in our text here, there there was a a worthiness that was required in order for this scroll to be opened. And and none was found who balanced that scale. Nobody in heaven or on earth or under the earth. And and we're told that this makes John very, very sad. Look at verse 4. And I began to weep loudly. Because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. No one in heaven on earth or under the earth balanced the scales. No one was found who was worthy to open it. Now, why does this make John so sad? We're told that he wept loudly and that he began to weep loudly. So this is not he shed a few tears in momentary sadness. This is... Bitter grieving and loud weeping that goes on and on and on. He is really messed up about this. Why is that? Well, he knew what the scroll contained. He knew what was in it. That this is the beginning of what Jesus said in chapter 4 when he told John, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. That which must take place after this is that which is contained in this scroll. And it can't take place unless there is found one who can open the scroll. And it can't be opened unless that person is found. And no one is found who can. No one is found who balances that scale. And this makes John very sad. He begins to weep bitterly. And why? Why? Because he is bitterly aware that this world of sin and pain and injustice and unrighteousness must come to an end. There is too much pain, too much suffering, too much unrighteousness and evil and debauchery and sin. He's on the island of Patmos here, John is in exile because of his faith in the Son of God. Many, if not most, of his contemporary apostles have been martyred because of their faith in Jesus. He's writing the letters of chapters 2 and 3 to friends and churches in Asia Minor who are being persecuted because of their faith in Jesus. God is being mocked. Jesus is being rejected And unless someone is found who is worthy to open the scroll, John assumes that this world of sin and suffering will be without end. And the evil and the rebellion and the unrighteousness will go unpunished. That there will be no justice ever. And God will be mocked and Jesus will be rejected forever. And this makes John very distraught. And he begins to weep loudly. Then what happens? Verse 5. And one of the elders, so this is one of the 24 elders from last week. Angelic Beans, said to me, weep no more. Behold. There's that word look again. He wants us to see this. It's almost as if the elder is pointing to something. Behold. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And so here's where we're introduced to Jesus. But we know that Jesus has been in this story all along, this vision all along, right? He's the one who invited John, come up here so I'll show you what must take place so you can see this throne room vision and record it for the saints. But now he's not just here as John's guide in this vision. Now he takes on a central role in the vision itself. And the elder introduces Jesus here with two titles. First, the Lion of the Tribe of Judah. This is from Genesis 49. At the end of the book of Genesis, Jacob dies. The patriarch Jacob, otherwise known as Israel, dies. And he pronounces blessings over his sons and some of those blessings are prophecies prophetically saying this is what will happen to you. And when he gets to his son Judah, this is part of what he says in Genesis 49. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey my son you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, as a lioness, who dares rouse him. So Judah, you're a lion. Your tribe, you're you're a lion. The lion was a symbol of kingly rule. The, the uh, magnificence of the lion represented the regality of the king. But listen to what he says in verse 10. The scepter, which is symbolic, a symbolic staff that represented the king's rule, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. And the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples or the nations. So the promise here was that one was coming from the tribe of Judah who would rule and reign over God's people forever. And in Revelation chapter 5 verse 5, John applies that title to Jesus or the elder applies that title to Jesus. In Matthew and Luke's gospel, as we read the genealogy of Jesus, they both attest to the fact that Jesus is from the lineage of the tribe of Judah. He's from that tribe. And he is the crucified, resurrected, ascended son of God. He will reign and rule over God's people forever. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. But the second title that the elder uses to introduce Jesus is the root of David. Now, this title comes from the prophecy of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 11, he says this There shall come forth a shoot or a root from the stump, that is the tree of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Now, there was a dual fulfillment to that prophecy there was a partial, temporary fulfillment. ...of that prophecy in King David. David was the youngest son of Jesse. And he became the king, the greatest king Israel had ever known... ...a man after God's own heart. But then there is ultimate and complete and eternal fulfillment... ...of this prophecy in Jesus Christ. The Apostle John in Romans chapter 15 quotes from these verses in Isaiah chapter 11 and applies this title, the root of Jesse to Jesus. And so the elder in John's vision points to Jesus and he says, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, here is one who balances the scales. Here's one who is worthy And why is Jesus worthy? Because in the words of this elder himself who is speaking, he has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. He balances the scales because he has conquered. What has he conquered? He's conquered sin and death. As we sang in that song, he conquered the grave when he died on the cross for sinners. He conquers sin and death through what he did on the cross. He's the one who will fulfill the prophecy of of Genesis 3.15. There is coming one who's going to crush the head of the serpent. Jesus did that when he died on the cross, defeating sin and death forever for those who would trust in him. And Because he has conquered sin and death, he is axios. He is worthy. He is that which balances the scales. On one side of the scale is this scroll which contains that which must must take place. And that which must take place is that every sin, every rebellion against God, every moment and word and action and deed of unrighteousness must be answered. It must be punished. Justice must come. The final and complete redemption of mankind, of, of sinners who have been rescued by God's grace, And ushered into God's kingdom must take place. There must be a means by which that will happen. There must be a means by which all things will be made new. And all of that is contained in this scroll. And that's on one side of the scale. And on the other side of the scale is the resurrected Christ. The Redeemer. The Restorer of all things. The the Root of David. The Lion. And He's enough. He balances the scale. He is axios. He is worthy as he's introduced by this elder. And so John expectantly, what does he do? He turns around. He turns around expecting to see this lion. And what does he see? Verse 6, In between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb. Standing as though it had been slain. With seven horns, and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the, the earth. And so he turns around, he's expecting to see a lion, right? Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's conquered so that the scroll can be opened. And he doesn't see a lion. He sees a lamb. A lamb. And this lamb is standing, but standing as though it had been slain. I don't know what that looked like. I don't know what John saw to be able to put that through the spirit into those words. I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. But I love the way he put it. It was standing, but it was standing as though it had been slain. It had been slain in the past. It had been killed in the past. But not any longer was it lying dead. It was standing. A clear reference not only to Jesus' crucifixion. The lamb was slain. But to his resurrection. The lamb is standing. This is what he sees. He sees this lamb who's standing as though it had been slain. This is the lion of the tribe of Judah. This is the Root of David. He's got seven horns. Horns in scripture symbolize salvation and victory. This is a reference to his conquering and defeating sin and death in the grave. And he has seven eyes, which John tells us are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. We've seen this a number of times. The seven spirits of God represent the singular Holy Spirit. The number seven representing the number of completion in the book of revelation this lamb is worthy this is the lamb that balances the scales so what does he do verse 7 and he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne so god's holding the scroll and there's no one able to open it but jesus is worthy He balances the scale. So he goes and takes it because he's the only one who is worthy. And what does he do next? Well, what he does next is he begins to open the scroll. But that doesn't happen until chapter 6. So I want us to look at the remainder of chapter 5 and see what happens in this throne room scene. I want us to read through this uninterrupted as we see what occurs in heaven at the demonstration of this lamb being worthy. Verses 8 through 14. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain In chapter 4, we saw the worship of God the Father, Yahweh, on the throne. And we said in chapter 4 that that was a snapshot of the worship that is taking place right now in heaven, God the Father. But here in chapter 5, we see the worship of the Lamb, the Son of God, because He's worthy to open the scroll. And this is not a snapshot of worship that is taking place right now. Instead, this is part of that which must take place after this. As we mentioned last week, the futurist view of the book of Revelation, which I prefer, for now at least, sees this worship of the Lamb as something that will take place after the current church age comes to an end. The preterist view will see this worship as something that is in fact happening right now. Because the after this stuff is the things that take place after the first century, which includes the time that we're living in right now. So again, while I want to leave the door open for the preterist view as a very real possibility, I prefer the former. That what we have here in this particular scene of the worship of the Lamb here Is the inaugural event that ushers in the eschatological end of the world as we know it. But what we need to see here is that Jesus takes the scroll from God's hand as he sits on the throne, because he's the only one worthy. He's the only one who balances the scale. Nobody else can do it, nobody else is heavy enough, only Jesus. And so he takes that scroll. But before he opens it, next week in chapter 6, begins to open it, this cacophony of praise and worship breaks out in heaven. The worship begins with the four living creatures and the 24 elders that we saw last week. They are worshiping the lamb here in verses 8 through 10. The picture of this worship service widens out and then includes thousands upon thousands of other angels in heaven in verses 11 and 12. Then it widens out further to include all of creation in verse 13 and then returns again to the four living creatures and the 24 elders in verse 14. So I want us to look more closely at this worship. And as we do, I want us to consider a couple of responses. The primary consideration here is the worthiness of the lamb. That's the primary consideration in this chapter. That's what these angelic beings are repeating over and over again. Worthy is the lamb. And so ask yourself as we go through this, is Jesus worthy to you? And I don't think that we're meant to answer that in an intellectual or academic way. Because I think we would all agree, yes, of course, Jesus is worthy. But instead, I think we're to ask ourselves, does my life represent the fact that I believe that Jesus is worthy? The way you live your life, what you give yourself to, the goals that you have, what you aspire to, what you want to be and do, what you want your family to be and do, the decisions that you make. Does it give evidence to your confession that Jesus is worthy? That Jesus balances the scale in all ways? I want you to consider that as we look more closely at this worship. But there's a secondary consideration I also want us to consider. And that is to what degree can and should the worship that we see in this scene inform our corporate worship as the gathered church. Now these are angelic beings whose job it is 24-7 for all of eternity to worship the one who sits on the throne in the Lamb. And so I don't think that we're meant to necessarily see this as prescriptive for all of our corporate worship services. However, I think there are some general principles here that can be applied to how we worship when the church gathers. So he says in verse 8, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fall down before the Lamb. They they fall prostrate, face to the ground, in humble adoration and awe of this Lamb. They do this in response to His worthiness, His weightiness. Like Isaiah in that throne room scene in Isaiah chapter 6, when he beholds the glory of God what does he say of himself? Woe is me, I am undone. Church, humility is a natural and right response to beholding the worthiness of King Jesus. And a lack of humility before God perhaps betrays the fact that maybe we don't really believe that he's worthy. Humility represents He's weighty. We're not. We don't balance the scales. We are not worthy. He is. And so is your life characterized more by humility or by pride? If it's characterized more by pride, then perhaps you would do well. vision of The worthiness of Christ. And by the way, When was the last time we fell down prostrate in our worship services, right? Like literally fell down on our faces in worship. We don't do that, do we? And I'm not necessarily suggesting that we should, but I am suggesting that this is the posture of spirit that we are to have in worship. That we're not thinking of ourselves, that we're not thinking of how well we sound, or how poorly we sound, or that the lyrics on the screen are behind a little bit. No, no, we're setting all of that aside, and we're focusing purely on Jesus. We are figuratively, in our spirit, falling down prostrate before Him in humble adoration and awe of who He is and the weightiness of Him, of this Lamb. That's our goal in corporate worship. And that's what we see here in this scene by these angels. Before John records their song in verse 9, he draws our attention to the fact that the four living creatures and the, and the 24 elders are holding, first of all, harps. So there's going to be music in heaven. Praise God for that. Secondly, they're holding these golden bowls full of incense, which John interprets for us and says which are the prayers of the saints. Now, we're going to see this a couple more times in this book. And so I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on it now. But our prayers, church, the prayers of the saints, especially those prayers that cry out to God for justice, that cry out to God to remove sin and evil and unrighteousness from the earth, those prayers are stored up by God In these golden bowls of incense. Now in the here and now. You and I might think that those prayers go unanswered. But they do not. God stores them up. He stores them up in these golden bowls. And one day. These bowls will be lit. These bowls of incense will be lit before the Lord. And bring a fragrant odor to his nostrils. As he answers every prayer. Single one of them. What an encouragement to you and I as we pray to God for justice to be done and for Him to not let evil go answered. He's not not answering them, He's just saying, Not yet. Not yet. Hold on. I'm storing them up. They will be answered. Then the four living creatures and the 24 elders sing what we're told is a new song. All throughout Scripture, we're told to sing a new song to Him. Here they sing this new song. And they sing about the worthiness of lamb because of what he has accomplished, because of what he has done. It says, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? For you were slain and by your blood you ransom people for God. So Jesus is worthy because of what he accomplished at the cross of Calvary where he was slain. And the song says that you ransom people for God. That word ransom is the common Greek word for purchase. For buy, Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 6.20, where he says, For you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. That idea of purchase there, us being bought with a price, is that concept of our redemption. In fact, that word is actually translated redeem by Paul in Galatians chapter 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem, to purchase, to ransom those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So we were redeemed. We were purchased from from a life of sin and and from an eternity being punished for that sin, an eternity apart from God. We were purchased from that. We, We were bought from that, redeemed from that. And the song says that the price of our ransom, the price of our purchase was his blood, his blood shed on the cross. Friends, this is the gospel that these angels are speaking about. That that the the lamb was slain, that, that his shed blood on the cross as he died for you and I paid the price to redeem a people back to God, to purchase a people back to God. And notice that this is all in the past tense. Church, is so important to see this. This is all in the past tense. You are worthy for you were slain and you redeemed a people for God. There's nothing else that needs to be done. The work was finished at Calvary. Upon Jesus' crucifixion, And resurrection three days later, the opening of this scroll is a done deal. It was just waiting for God's timing to flesh out. But it was a done deal. Church, see that Jesus doesn't have to do anything here. There's nothing more to be done. There's nothing more that you and I need to be done. It was all done at Calvary. It was all finished at the cross. Nothing else needs to be done. Jesus is worthy because he was slain. Is worthy to open the scroll, which is what they sing next. So the gospel, the gospel, as it was central to the angels' worship, it must be central to our worship as well. Our corporate worship ought to be oozing with gospel truths. We ought to have a gospel in our worship services. The, the, the truths of the gospel are just bleeding out all over the place so that our affections are drawn to the Lamb who was slain. For the purchase of a people from what we deserve to what we don't deserve. Our worship ought to be oozing with the gospel as well. And note here who is redeemed. He says he's redeeming a ransoming a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. We're going to see this a lot in the book of Revelation. This is God's fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise. That there is coming one from you who will be a blessing to all the nations. God's plan of redemption has always been global in scope. Every tribe, every nation, every language, every people. And here we see the fulfillment of that global plan. As a people from every tribe, language, nation, and people are redeemed back to Jesus. And not only have we been redeemed from sin and death, but we've been redeemed to something as well. He says in verse 10, you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth. As members of his kingdom, we will reign and rule with King Jesus in the millennial kingdom and the final state. If you only believe in one of those, that's fine. Pick one of them. But we will reign as a kingdom with Jesus in the new earth. And, and priests to God, he says. As priests, our job will be to offer sacrifices and praise to our God forever. This is our identity as the church. We are a kingdom and priests to our God who will reign on the earth. And then the rest of the angels in verses 11 and 12 join in. And we're meant to see here through John's description the magnitude, the immensity of this angelic choir. He says, I heard the voice of many angels numbering myriads upon myriads, thousands upon thousands. That's a huge choir. Lots of voices. The idea is that with the four living creatures and the 24 elders are now joined the voices of all of heaven to join in this worship. But they sing, worthy is the lamb to receive what? Verse 12. To receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So think about that scale again. The four living creatures and the 24 elders, they sing that the lamb is worthy to open the scroll. So in that picture, we have the scroll on one side of the scale. And in it contains God's sovereign plan to answer all sin and to remove all evil and unrighteousness forever. To finally and completely redeem his people and make all things new. And on the other side is Jesus. He balances the scale. But now in the song of the rest of the angels of heaven, the myriads of angels of heaven, what's on the other side of the scale? All power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. And Jesus balances that scale as well. He alone is worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then all of creation joins in in the next verse, in verse 13. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Friend, we're here in this scene, all of us. We're here in this part of the scene here. And and I would submit to you that I believe that this scene of the worship of the Lamb, this part, contains not just believers, but unbelievers as well. Not just the regenerate, but the unregenerate. As Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And note that this, in this final part of this worship service scene here in chapter 5, this worship is directed not just to the Lamb, but also to Him who sits on the throne. Our God and His Son are worthy of the eternal worship of every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Just think about what that includes. Every part of creation. Every creature in heaven, so all the angelic beings, on earth, under the earth, the fallen angels, and then he adds, and in the sea, and all that is in them. Every part of creation, our God and His Son they balance the scales of the worship and the glory and the honor of everything that's ever been made, which is everything except Him. He balances the scale of all that. He is worthy of that. And then the four living creatures said amen, which, which means truly. It's an expression of agreement. Yes! And the 24 elders fall down and worship. And the, the verb said there, that the creatures said amen. That word said is a verb that's in the imperfect tense, which tells us that this is an ongoing action. It's not just he said it, he's saying it, and he's going to keep on saying it. Yes, 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 he's worthy. Yes, he's worthy. Yes, he's worthy. What an incredible picture of the worthiness of Jesus. As we back away from this, I want to leave you with three very simple takeaways from this scene. First of all, when we see and when we hear John weeping loudly because there is no one who is able to open the scroll, we should remember and see in that the desperate need of sinners for a Savior. Apart from Christ, we are hopeless. Our sin and our rebellion against God have made us unacceptable to God. If you don't think that applies to you, you're wrong. It applies to every single one of us. And there's nothing that we can do to change that. We we can't make ourselves acceptable to God. And so we are doomed to live a life dominated by sin and then spend an eternity paying for it in judgment. This is the very real and devastating condition and state of every human being who's ever lived. But God, who's rich in mercy, right? God sent his son who lived a perfect life and died on a cross paying the punishment of the sins of those who would trust in him for redemption. So when we hear John weeping loudly here, that no one's able to finish this, to wrap things up, to, to execute God's plan, we should be reminded that apart from Christ, we are hopeless. That apart from Christ, we are completely lost. Secondly, we should see here, God's good and sovereign and timely plan to judge sin, redeem his people, and make all things new. Church, thank the Lord there is a scroll. Thank goodness the God who is sitting on the throne here, he's got a scroll. Imagine if he didn't. Imagine if there were no scroll. The world of sin and evil and unrighteousness would continue on unpunished. There would be no justice. There would be no means of ultimate salvation from the presence of sin for His people. Our God in His sovereign kindness and mercy has determined that this world stained by sin will not last forever. All evil and rebellion will not go unpunished. There is a plan. There is a plan to bring an end to sin and to make all things new. And that plan is in this scroll. Thank the Lord there's a scroll, right? And then finally, we should see that only Jesus is worthy. The four living creatures, the 24 elders, fall down in humble adoration, shouldn't we? All of the myriads of the angelic choir in heaven, numbering thousands upon thousands, cry out, worthy is the Lamb to receive all the honor, glory, and praise of all of the earth. And then one day, all of creation will join into that, you and I included, recognizing that God is worthy of all the honor and glory and praise forever. Put all of the honor, all of the glory, all of the praise of every creature and all of creation for all of eternity on one side of the scale. And Jesus balances it. He's enough. He is weighty. He is worthy. Worthy is the lamb. May we live a life that proclaims that to the world around us. May we live a life that is a worship service that proclaims worthy is the lamb until he brings us home and we see him face to face. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful for this scene. How encouraging it is as we continue to seek to live faithfully for you and accomplish your mission on this earth until you bring this world to an end or you call us home. We're thankful to see this scene that says that this world of sin and suffering and pain filled with evil and unrighteousness and sin will not last forever. And we cry out, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Until you do, Father, may this scene keep us anchored to the gospel. Keep us thankful for the gospel. Keep us proclaiming the gospel and keep us living a life that reclaims the weightiness and worthiness of Jesus until we see him face to face. Encourage us this week to stay in this, Father. Bring faith to the unbeliever who is here, who doesn't have the hope of this scene. Instead, we'll observe this scene from Hades, apart from Christ. God, give them the faith, the trust in Jesus to be remade into a worshiper, to live their life for your glory. That they too can be rescued and be called one of your own. We love you, Father. Help us live in light of the worthiness of your Son. In his name we pray. Amen.